welcome to the Regeneration uh, Podcast. I almost said broadcast. And uh, I'm Michael Martin, your host today, all by himself, because Mike Sauter, my brother-in-arms, is indisposed. So I'm flying solo today. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this discussion with, with Jamie Kohani, who is a, a psychotherapist. And you're in the LA area? I'm in San Diego. You're in San Diego, even mm -hmm. some, even farther south. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to talk to her because in a topic I've been interested in since I was a kid. So here's a little story. So probably, I don't know, 1978 or 79, maybe the beginning of 1980, uh, I used to walk, I would walk home from school, which was about a mile and a half away. And there was a, I, I called it the junk store, but it was like a resale shop, mm -hmm. almost a flea market. And this is in Detroit back in the 1970s. And uh, they would sell, you know, I'd buy books or clothes. You know, I think I bought a Marine jacket there. And, but the one time I went there and they had a whole bunch of magazines, old magazines out that they were trying to unload for like a quarter a piece. And there was one, I can't remember if it was Life or Look magazine, but it was about LSD. And it probably was published in the early 60s, like 62, 63. So, I, you know, I bought it. It's kind of an interesting topic. And it was interesting to, to look at it because, you know, in the late 70s, when I was a kid, <clears throat> there was a, you know, this is after... Uh, after the hippies and this is getting into the, into the punk era mm -hmm. and the idea of psychedelics was you know taboo especially for you know an Irish Irish working class Catholic like I was and yet I brought it home and I was really fascinated it was like it was a kind of kid that liked to read things you know that were uh, out of the norm and it was really fascinating I remember one thing I don't know why this sticks out. I think I think Timothy Leary, Leary was in there. I think it was before he got bounced from Harvard. But there was this one guy in there, like like as a mathematician, who would take LSD once a week with his cat. He would give his cat some LSD. I remember that sticks out in my memory. Uh, but it's it's kind of a fascinating topic to me because uh, and, and and that's why we're going to talk to Jamie today because a few weeks in fact a few weeks ago it was on Father's Day my two of my kids well how many of my kids uh, seven out of nine were home and I was having a conversation with my my eldest and my middle child who are thirty three and twenty two respectively and they were. And, and the 22-year-old who was this kind of voracious reader, he's interested in everything, asked me if I had any experience with lucid dreaming or knew anything about DMT. And I really didn't know any, well, I think lucid dreaming, I think I've tried it, I, I, <laughs> but it's not something I pursue. <clears throat> but DMT, I really never thought about too much at all. And he started telling me these stories that he'd been reading, he read this book on it. He'd watched some podcasts with Joe Rogan, et cetera. But the 33-year-old piped up and he, one of his friends had been taking DMT trips. And DMT, for those of you, is dimethylene uh, trip, what is it called? Tryptamine, dimethyltryptamine, which is uh, 
a, hallu- uh, not a, hallucin- a psychedelic. <clears throat> well, what happened? So it happened to his friend. He took it a few times, this kid. And the first time he took it, he saw the fairies or the elves. And they were kind of nice and friendly and everything. Second time he took it, you know, they were they were still there. But after a few times, one time he went he went into his trip. And from what I understand, these trips are really short but really intense. And but one time the the elves told him, Hey, buddy, you're not supposed to be here. Don't come back. And he went back. And then they got mad at him. And they yelled at him, don't ever, I, we told you not to come back. You're not supposed to be here. This is not for you. And so it was kind of fascinating. And I, I wrote about it in my Substack and about some other things as well. And Jamie wrote me an email talking and mentioning that she, in her practice as a psychotherapist, uh, has also had ex, you know, experience with using uh not DMT, but uh, psychedelics as ways to help people um, come to terms with their being. So welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thank you. Gosh, just like your intro, where do we start? (laughs) Well, that's it. I mean, so let's start. When did you first become aware of such a thing as psychedelics? So such a thing as psychedelics i mean my my first church like many people was the church of rock and roll you know and (laughs) i became interested in psychedelics probably as a teenager when i was at music school were my first so to clarify i i graduated from berkeley college of music but would go up there in the summer as part of a program for musicians and um I had my first exposure to psilocybin recreationally and um I guess you know I can share really personally because it kind of sums up my whole story in a sense so I had music was for me kind of like um a lifeboat in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways I'm here that um I had, a, I had a childhood that had a lot of suffering inside of it, a lot of good inside of it too. Um, but I had some pretty significant wounds that really were in need of healing. Music was a part of that. And I didn't know when I first tried psilocybin that I was getting into a world of healing at all. I, at that time, had no orientation at all that I was going to end up becoming a psychotherapist or in a healing profession. I, I knew that I loved to do music, but I wasn't much of a performer. That's not really my personality. And so the first time that I took psilocybin, I started in a field with some friends and I had some headphones on and I was listening to Bach, oh boy first time so I came up with Bach in my ears and in my whole being I had a sense that I live in a completely impeccably ordered universe and that all of the parts fit together in a harmonious way 
And I opened my eyes and I looked in front of me and for just a moment in kind of even in, I was in a field that was in, in a city. I was in Boston. And I looked out onto the street and onto the street, you know, it was not necessarily in ordinary consciousness, a beautiful scene. There's homeless people, there's loud arguments and buses and cars and noise. Mm -hmm. And I had a kind of view of it of, isn't it perfect? And that journey came to a close but that impression was extremely healing and started to reorient my life, which was I had really been preoccupied, like many teenagers are who are in pain, with escaping. Yeah. I wanted to get out. I took psilocybin to get out and was surprised to learn that I didn't get out, that I went in. And I think that that was sort of my first real curiosity about psychedelics. And then I really started to notice that there's a really different experience um, that people were having that I was not having who were taking psychedelics to get high or to have big experiences. I got a big experience by grace, but I wasn't trying to party necessarily from right. that point forward. And I wasn't trying to run away that I had this sense of this nascent God. Right. I didn't know where it was located at that time. People who don't know me will be surprised to learn that somehow this journey has landed me in the Catholic church which is an interesting spot. Um, <laughs> I remember at one point actually in these, um, in an experience like this, asking if there is a God, I want to see your face, but please make it anything but the Catholic church. Cause I was a wild girl. And that I associated the church with just limits and, um, just a lot of baggage and a lot of lot of uh, projection. So what was your religious background, if any at all? Yeah, that's helpful. So I grew up um, in a reformed Jewish family. And so we were not particularly theistic or obs observant in any way. Um, we were cultural Jews for the most part. My mother had a kind of... Um, kind of wild, wild mystic streak in a way. She grew up Christian, um, but she had converted to marry my father to Judaism. And interestingly, she was the one that sort of held whatever ritual practice we had with Judaism sort of more even than, than my father, who was, I would say, bordering atheism. And um, so we had a kind of smorgasbord in our house of ritual activity because my mother's side of the family was, there were some Catholics, there were some lapsed Catholics, there were some Lutherans. And then on my father's side of the family, there were Jews of different levels of observation, but mostly reformed Jews. So 
I did have some early childhood experiences if I had um, a grandmother figure who took care of me who was Catholic. And I think she attended daily mass and she would bring me in there with her. And I have some sense memory of being there, actually. Um, I remember what the space was like and mm -hmm. I remember what it felt like to be in there. But that was... Um, my my real only formal contact with the church and then most of my obsession with the church really later on was sort of as a militant feminist you know as a teenager very angry at, at what i thought the catholic church was so it's been a it's been a big ride and so how about how old were you when when uh, your initial psilocybin experience i was probably about 16 16 okay mm -hmm. um because, I mean, it, and it's interesting that you wanted to, to see God, you know, and that's when I remember, I mean, I was definitely, you know, your, your biography sounds very much like mine, mm -hmm. you know, where uh, various levels of childhood trauma, mm -hmm. but also the salvation for me was the guitar, right? Was mm -hmm. That was my way out. <laughs> I always tell people in the 70s, you know, working class. Catholic kids had three choices: the the military, the factory, or rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I, I I went for rock and roll because um, I I couldn't imagine the other two. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like you. I mean, I I had a kind of uh, my family was pretty pretty Catholic. I mean, not I, I don't think we had a Bible in the house, but we went to church every week. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also you know, what, what intrigued me in, in that when I read that Life magazine when I was 17 or however, however old, this idea of finding metaphysical truth mm -hmm. that people reported from that. That's what interested me, mm -hmm. right? And so when I was a little older and I heard about people, you know, experimenting with psilocybin or LSD, you know, it was intriguing to me because it's, you know, I, I was all in for being enlightened. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. right and you know and of course if you know you know your music history you know about the Beatles mm -hmm. right and their experiences with LSD um which and you can tell with the Beatles man with you know you can tell the day they they started taking acid because they went from a, an English pop band to what they were later right which is very different um and it's interesting too because I was you know pre preparing for our discussion today watching a few videos on uh youtube with people with their dmt experiences including uh joe rogan's interview with rick strassman i think it is who wrote a, wrote a book about that my son was reading about and it's in fact one woman was actually in this video i saw was uh talking about um kind of being a lapsed catholic she's actually a neuroscientist and she found herself at the last supper and she and, and so many of these people felt connected to everything you know whether it was through dmt or through through acid and there uh or lsd and in fact i mean, you've probably seen uh in fact i can even pull it up for a second here let me see if it works Okay, can you see that? Looks like it's coming. Yeah, I can see it. Now, now this is a, a woman from 1950. This is before mm -hmm. I was born. Who, uh, this is when uh, people in your profession, 
psychologists would do a lot of experimenting with LSD and, and subjects. So here, let's hear what she has to say. Did you hear that? Okay, so the 1950s, and this is they were doing these experiments, and people were having, you know, I mean, probably not all blissful experiences, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There were some bad trips involved, but but at least it, it's interesting to me that scientists were interested at that in, in consciousness in those days, and you saw this happen with Timothy Leary later, mm -hmm. where. Of course, he was in academia at Harvard, of all places. Mm -hmm. No wonder he thought it was stupid after taking time, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> after going on um, psychedelics. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And, and it's also been interesting the last few years, and this is where your work comes in, where the psychedelics have made a re-entry into the practice of psychotherapy. Yeah. And so the first thing I think is like a kind of, cool thing to think about in a way is psych psychedelics really never left healing. Just in our mainstream medical Western model, they were illegalized and they stopped being used, right? And really in part, not they've reemerged in a lot of ways because there's clearly a lot of research out there that is now showing the incredible potential but I think that that container needed to happen in a way because we're looking at now if we're going to reintroduce psychedelics into medicinal use and into healing use, how are we going to respect what you said? That these are pretty powerful, potent experiences that people are having. These are big medicines. Yeah. Um, and what kind of guidance do we need to um encounter the people who want to just get high or escape right. i want to say something about both of those things too when we hear both of those terms get high and transcend or escape i can't help but see that longing as part of a longing for god it just gets misguided Mm -hmm. And I think that like that, that's like what Carl Jung was talking about when he talked about the religious nature of the psyche in part is that we have, right, mm -hmm. 
we all have the universal experience of our hearts will be restless until we rest in God. We have that. And so we long and we crave to kind of get high because I think we're longing for the ultimate. And so what, what we're looking at now is if these medicines are coming back, like in Oregon, for example, part of the legalization process is they're legal for use with priests, pastors, mm. people who are in that sphere, people like me who are working in psychotherapy and people in the medical profession. So they're, they're considering how do, we, how do we use this medicine in a way, how it's been used in other cultures for a long time where basically there was some guidance around this work. So that's my real kind of fear in a way also about some of the stories that I hear about just recreational DMT as an right. example. Mm -hmm. That any, like just a basic premise of psychedelic therapy is that your set, your mindset, your intentionality and the setting that you are in are the scaffolding of your entire experience. And so a bunch of kids in a basement doing DMT sounds pretty scary to me, yeah. to be honest. And, but that could be my judgment, but I think it's my best prudence at this point that it looks like, um, especially that some substances, many would say are kind of like a, um, they're a big experience to integrate. So a big part of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is this arc, which is you're doing preparation work with a person. They're having medicine experiences and then they're having integration. And the most important part of the work is the integration is after you've had, let's say this ex visionary experience where you have seen something life-changing how do you then integrate that into your life and use other non-drug extraordinary states like meditation, prayer, music making, art making, mm -hmm. and the non-ordinary state that we induce every night when we dream? How do we integrate all of this into holiness or becoming whole? Right? That's and good. so... I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of incredible potential and I think there needs to be a lot of reverence for how this is going to look. Yeah. And I, and I think that's important because when I think, when I think about say a bunch of 16, 15 or 16 year olds <laughs> doing DMT in the basement, you know, pe people don't come back sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I certainly saw a lot of that when I was when I was young. Uh, and we also know, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but we also know various government agencies saw what was happening with those substances and did their own research, which was not necessarily intended to help the subject. Absolutely. And right. that we are, you know, I think we're re- when we open this door to the numinous, we could even say in a sense, when we turn, when we open our heart to prayer, we're opening a lot of things to potentially come in, right? Which is why in most traditions, there's some equivalent to making the sign of the cross before you pray, 
because you are opening that door and you're creating your set, your mindset Mm -hmm. of how you go through. I can't think of a tradition that doesn't have something like this. And, um, but nobody would ever say don't pray because there's a risk. Right. So that's sort of my relationship with psychedelics, you know, is that um, there's probably a place, probably a season, probably a purpose, probably um, an absolutely beneficial, perhaps completely transformational use of this experience. But a psychedelic experience, I think, alone is not going to um, is 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 not going to be the end. It's not going right. to be the transformational end. It's it's a it's a one of many 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 different um, vehicles. Right, and I and, and I love what you said about uh, part of your role as a, as a psychotherapist is in, is the is the stage of integration of those experiences, right? You know, help, which is, which makes you a kind of shaman, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it, it does. Well, you're helping your, your guide. You're a, you're a psychopomp, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're helping. Um, it's almost like with teaching. I always tell people with, with teaching and saying, you know, well, you're not, you're just kind of there directing things. Mm-hmm. You're not really doing anything. You're just, kind of, you're just mm-hmm. well, let's not go over there. Let's stay over here. Let's right. But you're not really coercing anything. You're just kind of yeah. I mean, it could right? be my very kind of feminine consciousness, but I think of myself more like a midwife. That's right. I like that. It's just I don't think of myself as a shaman. I guess in my imagination, um, I have a lot of respect. I think for that place that that exists in and that midwife is this word that captures that you are certainly present for a miracle but you didn't make that miracle right but you can do things or not do things that help that miracle go well or not and Mm -hmm. it is my deepest intent every time that I sit with somebody to have them have the 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 deepest healing and the deepest awareness of god who is i feel like ultimately the divine physician right that that's going to happen between them and god and i should also explicitly say i don't work in a in a catholic practice i don't i don't there are people who work as i'm a catholic psychotherapist i am a catholic psychotherapist that's true but sometimes people come to me and they have they're they're atheists you know they have no they don't they're not operating from there and so we start at their highest virtue or their highest value and so we say for you what is the thing of ultimate importance and that we're gonna we're gonna begin there and that I think we get I'm so fortunate I get to see the best of people because of that I mean I certainly get to see their woundedness but um, I get to see people express the thing that means the most to me, the direction I want to grow towards. And it gives me so much faith in people because yeah. the, the, the virtue and the value that they often pick out, it's, it's true with a capital T. There's, there's nobody from any religious stripe that would argue with it as being ultimately good. 
Yeah, and that's that's what I saw in a number of these videos I was watching in preparation is people saying, you know, even Joe Rogan said, you know, you get you just felt like God was there and you felt like everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is that's a good experience to have, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Reassurance is a good thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, the, the, in both my own experiences and sitting with other people, to put it in very kind of Catholic language, I began to see that what was happening is either divine will or permissive will all the time, all the time, that this is either God's direct plan or, okay, this is an indirect way you're going to come home. Hmm. And that in this indirect way to have the faith that there's going to be, um, if this person continues with goodwill and continues to, to truly seek what's true, good, and beautiful, that their path will be righted. And I know when I've expressed this to other people, that that degree of faith is is makes them very angry really yeah that there's a really strong sense of but that feels very relaxed jamie you know that we need to be fighting we need to be struggling we need to be doing something and interestingly i think that a lot of the 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 warfare the spiritual warfare that is an archetype of the religious journey for a mm -hmm. reason i think it's mostly in here it's mostly in here. Yeah. And that um, and that when people really are operating from a place of forgiveness and um, goodwill, they act differently. Mm -hmm. Their behaviors begin to kind of take care of themselves. And they they really begin to heal. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you could call it a kind of initiation too, right? Because mm -hmm. when we talked on the phone, was it last week? One of the things you mentioned is that sometimes psychedelics are, are a, a cure for atheism. Mm -hmm. Want to I mean, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I have... <laughs> I'm sure it exists because I'm, I'm open to all possibilities. But... Um, I've never met anybody who has a psychedelic experience that comes out a dogged scientific materialist. <laughs> be kind never of seen it. Right? Be kind of tough. It'd be and, really and hard. Now, the other thing that was interesting to me as, as I was uh, I was listening to other people's stories of, of psychedelics uh, and this feeling of oneness that they often come to. In fact, even the, the woman from the 50s we just watched, that's one of the first things she said. I just feel like I'm one with myself and with everything. Mm -hmm. which I want, you know, I have to wonder if in the, the ancient mysteries that that was part of the experience, because uh, I don't know if you know this book, but the golden ass by Lucius Apuleius. Mm -hmm. My husband um, mentioned it, but I'm not. Familiar. It's the best book ever. It's by one of my favorite things ever. And it actually, you would love it because, uh, you know, it culminates in a vision of Sophia mm. and it's beautiful. And, you know, um, what's interesting in that, in that is that's when he, he knows, I mean, that's the, that's the gnosis he comes to is that he's able to rest in, in God or the goddess in this case. Right. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 you you see and this is what that when when you hear about people with their DMT experiences, but and probably one of the more more common things is that, that it's more real than real. Mm -hmm. I've never done it, so I'm taking the word for it. But I, almost everyone has said it's more real than real mm -hmm. when you're in these experiences, and. And what I think happens in the mysteries, and I don't know if they were using some kind of psychedelics or they had other ways to get to that that place, but and this is where you you have the experience of of reality at last, right? And what I've been doing in sociology is kind of <laughs> a way to do that organically, <laughs> in a way, you know, is to how do we find out what's the real. And I think it also starts to challenge what we call organically when we think about that there's aspects of ketamine and MDMA, which we think of as lab synthesized psychedelics, that they relate to, to fungi, that we just can't get enough bioavailability of it in the fungi. And yeah. so it just starts to get very interesting about what we think of as a non-organic experience. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing, the DMT people say, you know, the thing is, it's it's already in your Strawberries. body. It's already in your body too, right? Well, it's the same thing. We have many receptors, <clears throat> mm -hmm. right, for these. And what does that mean? And what I believe that it means is we have an endogenous capacity, right? right. That I'm, I'm fairly certain that some of the great saints were evoking these states through prayer and meditation and contemplation. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a kind of um, purest, um, it is pure, that's quite amazing, you know? Yeah. I think that there's kind of a purest bias towards this. And then there's also another idea that exogenous, where, do, where does endogenous and exogenous begin and end? That's an interesting psychedelic question. Okay. <laughs> what's sure. inside and outside starts to kind of become interesting so um i think there's many many non-drug ways to have a psychedelic state i mean even here i mean i know i live in california so we're kind of you know we have all the extra stuff in a way <laughs> like people people can go 15 minutes from my house and close themselves up into a completely enclosed and darkened float tank right? And yeah. they can have an experience that is a non-drug experience. And I mean, I, I most, I'm sure that I have had glimmers of connection through the rosary. Mm -hmm. I, I really believe that. Yeah. Um, my dreams are a really important part of my life. I mean, that's how my, my background as a psychotherapist, I went to Pacifica Graduate Institute. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know. Yeah. So that's a fairly Jungian world. And then yeah. I, I just completed a certificate with the C.G. Jung Center here in um, Los Angeles. And, you know, Jung has been, that's, I mean, go into your dream. Yeah. Go into your dream and you will find what is true. And Jung came out, there's, I mean, you could see interviews of saying, somebody said to him, Carl Jung, do you believe in God? And he said, I don't have to believe. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And um, if these experiences lead people to an, I know, I know that there is a God, I can't help 
but believe that that is the beginning of them being on their way. And I don't know if every drug experience guarantees that. Mm-hmm. No, I, it's interesting. I didn't know you went to Pacifica. Yeah. We actually interviewed, not, Mike and I interviewed not too long ago, Daniel Polakoff, if you know him. I think you mentioned him to me. Okay, yeah, because yeah. he, he went there as well, or he taught there. <clears throat> um, so why don't you, can you describe, I mean, how, so if you're working with these substances with, with, with your clients, mm-hmm. how, do, how does that go? What, what's the process? Sure. So here in California, the only legal psychedelic drug is ketamine. Okay. So, and describe what ketamine is for, for, the, for our Sure, list. sure. So ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. And ketamine has been used in the operating room and in many, many other capacities other than in mental health for a very long time. But when people found that certain dosages of ketamine were used in the context of psychotherapy, well, I should say even more, it first was researched just medicinally outside of the context of psychotherapy, sort of like Prozac or one of these other drugs, could people receive ketamine infusions and get well with things like treatment resistant um, depression? And ketamine is um, also used in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is the work that I do. So some people who work with me also have experiences not with ketamine, with DMT and psilocybin. Some of them are traveling abroad and having those experiences. Some of them are having experiences like, I mean, ayahuasca tourism is like enormous. You know, people are having these very big experiences and then coming back and wanting to integrate those experiences in the States. So I see the only people with whom I sit with medicine is with ketamine. And it's been beautiful for people who have treatment resistant depression and who um, have to take the label off of it in a way and to talk about what I see in them is this incredibly rigid pattern of thinking and feeling and behaving. And what it appears that the ketamine seems to do is create this um, inner fluidity and flexibility So many, many people in very colloquial way come into therapy just saying, I'm stuck in my life in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I'm hurting because we are always hurting when transformation isn't happening. Right. You know, and um, so there, there, that's where most of the research with ketamine really began was in treatment resistant depression and then disorders of rigidity like obsessive compulsive disorders or things that take on those types of manifestations um so yeah so i see i sit with people with medicine with ketamine so we do their preparation their medicine and their integration sessions and the and i work with a prescriber Um, Because I'm a psychotherapist, I don't prescribe. So I work with um, a prescriber. And then I also have somebody who is a mentor to me and supervises me, um, not with the kind of policing that that kind of word gives, but that's the technical term for it here in California. But she's somebody who has been in this world. She was part of the original um, maps researcher. And then she went on to do, um, specific training in ketamine work. So I 
that's a really, really important piece of doing this work right. is um, collaborating. And then I also have other mentors who I work with. I have people who are in my psychedelic community who are 85 years old hmm. and who were around the first time this was you know, yeah. legal. I've had people who are mentors who went through, you know, like you said, watching lots of people who do psychedelics who never came back. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that feels really important to me too, because I'm, I am newer to this work to be in contact with people who've been doing this for a long time. The piece that I feel like I'm not as new per se with that has been a thread line of the past 12 years, though somebody could say you're new at dream work forever. Um, I've been working with people with their dreams and their art since day, since day one as a therapist. And then that's, there's a lot of overlap. Mm. Um, with so, um, so how long does it, does a ketamine trip last? About, depending on how you receive the medicine, whether you take it orally or whether you receive it in your bloodstream, it's it, through injection or right. through intravenous, I should say more specifically, it can be between 60 minutes and at maximum, I've seen two hours. Okay. And so you'll be with, with the, the client as they go through that? Okay. It's not like you give it to them and take two, take two of these and call me in the morning kind of thing, right? Well, it depends. So with oral ketamine, for <clears> example, <throat> oral ketamine is approved in California for home use. Okay. So, I mean, we, we are able to, in preparation sessions with, with really, in, in my, how I work, I should say, I shouldn't speak <laughs> yeah. for every psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, but, right. um, if somebody is a very kind of well-supported person in their life, they have a lot of resources around them um, for, uh, for safety and for support, they can have somebody who's a trusted sitter be at home with them while they have their medicine experience mm -hmm. and then usually go to sleep through the night and then I will see them in the morning. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But really especially for people who are having these experiences for the first time i would love to be their trusted person from day one but sometimes i'm not and sometimes it's better that their mom sit for them or their grandma sit for them that they are their safer person than i am at this point because feeling safe is, is an important component of that right very important very yeah. important now i don't know if you can answer this but what would you what would be your preferred substance to use if you if everything was legal if if i mean maybe there's not maybe it's this this for this situation this for another situation i think that i think your second point is is something to consider i think there are certain medicines that um I'm open to the idea that they could be more beneficial for some things than others. I think the universality that I see of all, if we make, if we become substance neutral and we look at the trip or the journey itself, that I'm more looking for what is the state of sort of the heart 
that the person is able to arrive in? What's, how do they arrive regardless of substance at, because I believe that this is really key to um, being able to kind of integrate it in experience of God is whether or not a person is calm, connected, clear, um, curious. These are all Richard Schwartz's words in a lot of ways. These are not my ideas, but, um, and I think that that could be different substances for different people, but I think probably, I think MDMA has like extraordinary potential. And I think in part, that's why it's had so much interest. And what does what MDMD, MDMA was, is a substance that they call an empathogenic. And an empathogenic, really the, the gift in an MDMA experience is deeply heightened states of mercy. Mm. mercy for oneself for this world and for the other and so also um uh i think most people who've had an experience with that substance would come back and say at the center of that experience was love really okay and i think that that is this is non-recreational MDMA, I'm saying. There's right. plenty of people who take MDMA and they go to a club and um, they're not, they're recreate, they're doing something different. Mm -hmm. But even some of those come back and say they had a big connected experience, but used really intentionally. There, I mean, people can go and watch videos about that online and read about that online, what, what MAPS has been doing with MDMA. And... Um, we're, I mean, we're, we're poised really for legalization here in California and Colorado and other places for that to come on board. Some people at one point were saying as early as, I think it was a Q2 of 2024 at one point. Okay. So that, um, so some medicines are very internally preoccupying where there's, um, Yeah, and there's something specific about MDMA that's that is interconnected with others that I think is the relational component of it is very very helpful. Yeah, um, that's interesting. By the way, little little aside. Last was it last fall? Last late summer? Uh, you know, I raise cows, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was psilocybin mushrooms growing in my compost pile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I I let them go, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't tell the kids what they were. Um, <laughs> but uh, and so it, that's all fascinating stuff. So so I guess I mean because I I I what I hear you saying and what I, is, and I think this is the kind of kid I was and the kind of kid you were. You know, it's you know it's. Victor Frankl, right? It's man's search for meaning. Mm -hmm. And this is what I think um, from what I, a lot of the people I know have has has drawn them to these substances is a, a deepening of meaning in their lives and feeling, and, and that part, you must see this a lot with people who you say, who come there saying they're stuck. What the, I, that would, I would just say, 
it's probably code for I don't have any meaning. I need to find. Yeah, to I think that's a good, nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, or and or two things. I don't have any meaning, and I am, I'm disconnected. That I don't feel like I am integrated and belonging to the world that I'm in. And when people feel um, that kind of remoteness, I mean, that's hell, feeling remote from God, feeling remote from belonging. That's a hell state. I don't know if that's a final destination, but that's certainly a hell state when we feel like we are remote from everything that's real and true and good. And um, so I think that meaning doesn't cure belonging. Meaning our, ultimate, our ultimate wish, I, at least my, my hunch yeah. is to be incorporated into the body. Of Christ in our Christian language is to be right. is to feel my incorporation into the web of life, and that when we don't feel that we feel like we need to figure it out intellectually, so we we think a lot, and then that becomes a kind of exhausting trap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, yeah, so let's talk about Catholicism and psychedelics and, and your profession, right? So. Yeah. How's that work out? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I, I, um, I don't know. That's my honest, faithful answer. Is now, have you talked to any people at church who about some sure. of these kinds of things, or, or yeah. do you know any other Catholic psychotherapists who? Maybe maybe have have Catholic psychotherapists on their shingle. Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't know of any Catholic psychotherapist yet, um, because I think that I think that most of most people's experience with with drugs is the shadow of drugs, mm -hmm. is addiction and compulsivity and and all kinds of um all kinds of really truly dangerous things that can come right. but i think that there is also a medicinal aspect of drug i'll give you a great example we receive in the er yeah. opiates and we don't all leave the er opiate addicts because we're in a set and a setting of healing, we use it in its context. However, if we receive opiates in a little brown bag coming home from the hospital, and we go into the set and setting of, I hate my job, my wife is leaving me, my child won't speak to me, that medicine takes on a different shape, hmm. right? So the medicine, the drugs in and of themselves elicit fear because there's a real shadow it's true and i think we need to more look at the human person rather than the substance in the responsibility that in part the 
human being that was the prescriber, the system that we're in, the human being that's the individual taking it, that we all matter in the equation of whether or not there's a terrible outcome from this, from this encounter with a medicine. So, you know, in, with Catholics that I've spoken to, there's many who just, I mean, it's right there in the catechism that the, that it says that the use of drugs, it inflicts, I think the wording is it inflicts grave damage, except on strictly therapeutic grounds. And I am not in favor of recreational drug use. Like that is so not my thing. Like this is really in, in terms of therapeutic grounds. I also am desperate for these medicines to come out of clandestine use and to, because secrecy is where demonic things happen. Mm. And so when this comes out into the light, that there is a lot more opportunity to look at how, um, first of all, to not be directly cooperating in tons of evil that can happen with the production of these medicines, right? Right. Or the distribution of them. So that that's all a big quandary right now. And so that's the benefit that I see from legalization is that that dimension of real darkness has an opportunity to come into the light and be healed. So that's how it works. Things have to come into surface to be seen and healed. That secrecy is really awful. And that the therapeutic use of these medicines is something different than, you know, some of the really kind of crass use of drugs that's out there. Yeah. Good. Um, so you make me think now, because we're talking in terms of the psyche, right? Mm -hmm. But what I'm, and this is this came up in, in especially in, in people's experiences of DMT. Um, what is it? I mean, what is what is this realm that people enter into with these substances? I wonder. Is it a purely uh, interior psychological drama, or is it something else? I mean, that was the the question a lot of, a lot of people were, were were having. Is well, it could be that it could be you're seeing a def different dimension of reality, or it could be that same thing of exogenous and endogenous of where does God end and I begin, right and how big is that spark of Christ that's in me, right? And that doesn't mean that I believe that I'm God or something like that at all. I certainly mm -hmm. don't. But where does my access begin? And that a lot of people imagine, especially us Catholics, that God is very far away, very, very far away, high in the sky. I got to, I got to, climb a lot of ladders we have a lot of ascending imagery in our world That's right as opposed to kind of what i think you are onto, which is the sophianic view which is we are breathing we are breathing the breath of god right now and that god is right here right here and when we when we live like that we live so differently um and so 
I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that question of where, where are we in that moment? Um, I think that, I think that's part of everybody's lore about psychedelics is what is this space? And I, there's a part of me that's inclined to think it's a state of being that we get into that is in attunement with God for a minute there, mm-hmm. just like in prayer, you know, that like we like tuning two instruments that you're in, you're attuned to one another. And then as the, the fear and the pride and all of the stuff that we know comes back with ordinary consciousness, we can lose that attunement. And then the integrative job is how do I get it back? Right. Right. And so when I sit and do my rosary, it's not just banging out 10 beads to appease the taskmaster God, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's really, <laughs> it's, um, I checked off all the, all the, the guy, all the prayers. Exactly. The- it's more literally, how do I, how do I cultivate a, how do I cultivate the being of Mary and my, myself right. as I imagine and walk myself through these mysteries and how do I keep the ground of my very being in that space of her because that's the only way I will have God in me and so those types of experiences where we have a very um embodied experience of God I think is what happens sometimes with psychedelics is that that some of that remoteness can be um clarified that God is not so far away. And that I think when people can feel that, that God is right there, right? That is a giant game changer. Um, for most people. Yeah. No, because what you're, what you're describing here reminds me of, uh, you know, well, I think what we're talking about with these, these substances is, mm-hmm. People by people taking them, they they have a kind of immersive experience in in reality and in truth, mm-hmm. beauty, and goodness potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a almost like becoming a child again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which we're told to do biblically, huh? <laughs> well, exactly, and this is what <laughs> Thomas Traherne's entire body of work is is mm-hmm. an instruction manual about how to become a child again. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure what you deal with in your practice is people who have been whether traumatized or just damaged by a you know a dreadful culture a dreadful education that has has damaged them beyond belief and and battered and and, and, and you mentioned you know how prayer can bring us to the in the first thing i thought of was the visionaries at, at uh, fatima yeah, we're just kids and little kids at that, right? Who had no problem seeing the Virgin Mary. The same with Saint Bernadette, right? And people would say, "Well, I don't see her. How do you mean you don't see her? <laughs> She's right there. She's right there. I just touched her." Mm-hmm. Right. So, and so what? I mean, so what? I mean, why aren't we there? What, what is it that that takes us out of that garden? <laughs> I mean. I wonder in part if we're meant to live there full time. 
yet. I'm still alive. And while I'm still alive in this kind of ordinary state, maybe I will be there full time. And, you know, this is one of the incredible things. One of the beautiful things that's going on with psilocybin right now, I think it's at Johns Hopkins, if I recall, is about end of life care and hospice. Mm -hmm. And it seems to allow people who were very afraid to die to face death, which in my purview means facing life more courageously and um, opportunistically. I have an opportunity to die. And that's incredible. I do want to say, because we've spent 58 minutes talking about everything except for what is colloquially called a bad trip. And I think we should talk about that. Yeah, that feels like covering it all in a sense as best as we can. Maybe not at all, but I think that bad trips give us a really big opportunity to learn what redemptive suffering is. And that is a really lost, um, nobody wants to go through redemptive suffering. We've all gone through plenty of things. <laughs> no, thanks. No, thanks. <laughs> so nobody wants to sign up for a bad trip. So everybody's fear of a bad trip is absolutely valid. Absolutely valid. And I think that with really good preparation, especially for Christians who have this tradition of redemptive suffering, to say, I have the courage to encounter what God will bring me in my healing. I will have the right people, whether that's my priest or a spouse or a therapist or a dear friend or whoever. I will have faithful people to be to walk with me on the other side of that experience that um, that <coughs> openness. It's not an asking for it, but um and also to really um, to really just like with any other wound that a person experiences, that we have we don't just have mercy for people who are wounded accidentally. That that's not our call. We're supposed to have mercy for everyone. So mm -hmm. if somebody takes LSD and they have a terrible trip, to remember that we are if that person was taking that action in goodwill, they wanted to heal and they wanted to know God was, and they set themselves up as best as they could. And they had this, you know, experience of suffering that to, to trust in their own goodwill, that the people mm -hmm. around them are able to, to say, you know. Yeah. And actually, actually the I think it was the video that we, we looked at the clip of in the comments, a couple of people, talked about taking LSD and having bad trips mm -hmm. but how valuable that was yeah to I, go I, through I, that right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah 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 I mean I do this work with a couple bad trips under my belt um and may I may I not willingly have one again no thank you and also some of the greatest fruit that I've ever been given has come out of that. And so there's also, thank you, God. Mm -hmm. um, so it's truly, you know, it's truly a redemptive suffering experience in my opinion. Now, um, so how, how, 
how often do you uh, work this way with, with, with your, your clients? It's not necessarily the majority of my practice. Like right now, for example, I have three people doing psychedelic work and probably about, I don't know, 12 not, you know, but they're doing, I mean, drug work. I should say, you know, mm -hmm. those three people are working with medicine, but the rest of the people that I work with are usually working in some way with their dreams, in some way with art, and some of them are are just problem solving in their imagination with me, you know. So it just probably will depend on on what. Not everybody that that comes into practice with me. Does it look like, the, oh, that's that's the best route that we should go down? And so uh, I'm sure you have colleagues working in, in the same field, right? Mm -hmm. And what's their feeling about how things are, where they're going? What's, what's, oh. what's, what's the vibe out there? Oh, there's so much. I mean, there's we just got off of a giant, giant conference in Colorado. So there's a lot, a lot of excitement and potential. There's a big, there was a big psychedelic conference in Denver. Um, you know, I think that all the things, as they say these days, right? It's like people are very excited, people are very angry, people are very scared, people um they they have a sense that that something powerful is is coming into the hands of the general public, and that's got its risks and benefits, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. The scariest part to me, if I'm really honest, is there's some there's some ugly stuff going on with um, people wanting to synthesize psilocybin and trademark it. That's, that's oh really yeah. So there's some of that. Ugliness. I didn't know Bill Gates knew about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or I think that this is we can see here in California, for example, even like with cannabis legalization that happened here. You know, now they're, you know, giant corporate entities and mm -hmm. giant non-corporate and criminal entities have entered into a sphere that was, you know, families of pot farmers for generations, you know, out in Humboldt. Yeah. So I would predict we're going to have the same thing because people will recreationally abuse these drugs and that's going to be unfortunately a market and there are going to be people who are going to capitalize on that and it is going to hurt people that's yeah. for real so the people who are doing um intentional work and are really trying to be really reverent i think are so important and that if there is kind of a stigma amongst christians around this I, well, i'm sure I, there is i'm sure there is <laughs> yes there is um, I I think that it really needs to be to be looked at really carefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's that's really one of the themes Mike and I to cover a lot on on the channel is uh, the small is beautiful. Yeah. Aspect of things, and that's the you know the problem when the corporations get involved, you know, and the legalization of, of cannabis. We can call it pot, but uh. And that's an, it was interesting. So I remember when I was a kid, and I talk about this with my college students. It's kind of funny because I'll ask them. I don't know. I'm out of I'm out of the loop. What what kind of stuff's out there nowadays? 
and and I tell them how cheap marijuana was when I was a kid, and I hear how expensive it is now, and how strong it is now. Mm -hmm. It's so much stronger than it was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing if you, like you mentioned, when people are going to start synthesizing psilocybin, mm -hmm. you know, it's. It's like it's like Starbucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like that that that's why I really hesitate around the word, for example, of shaman or shamaness. That's something people have been doing for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna come in and play shaman. Right. Right. Um, that's also not my I don't know that that is um necessary in in the kind of way that we imagine that as western people you know i think we've all had a midwifery kind of experience where somebody's carried us through something mm -hmm. but um yeah there's even that kind of experience i think is being trademarked i think people in my field some of them understand themselves in that way and I think there's a risk and a benefit to that. Right. And, and I think and I think with the marijuana thing, I you know, my my suspicion, the reason it's it's becoming legal everywhere is because it's, it's so strong it'll keep people docile, right? Mm -hmm. Right? There's one one aspect of it. If they're just watching Netflix and smoking dope, well, we're gonna be we can do whatever we want to do. Mm -hmm. And I would think with psychedelics, it would, it would take that up a few notches, right? I mean, the thing that is hard about psychedelics is that psychedelics will bite you back right so you know i think marijuana eventually bites people back too i mean i've really seen that you know if it, it's it is a medicine to be respected mm -hmm. like if i could just underline that you know these plants and substances they're they are in i believe intended to be used with consciousness um, so they will bite you back, but psychedelics bite you back fast. And I think that, um, mm -hmm. I think that's going to happen, not in a vengeful way, just as kind of a natural repercussion with some of these corporations that are looking to do, um, a kind of an, a commercial explosion of psychedelics, you know, that that's in their imagination, that that will have such an awful blowback that whatever investment has been made there, I suspect will be lost. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that is such a dangerous proposition. Yeah, there's a lot of danger there. Absolutely yeah. a lot of danger there. Um, yeah, so, well, it's, so go back one more thing. Okay. You mentioned Christianity and Christians mm -hmm. and you're a practicing Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so I know there will be a lot of people, Christians watching this, this, this interview going, wait a minute, <laughs> hold this. You're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. What do you say to them? Hmm. I, I guess in part, I start with, um, It's a good question. Such a, I don't know that I would have a blanket statement, mm -hmm. right? That it's like each human being has a different concern. I believe that their anger or their um, 
anxiety correction of me that they feel is necessary it comes from a really good place you know that they are wanting to to protect and preserve what they feel is is incredibly important and so um I have a lot of respect for that. Right. Um, I think all, all each of us can do is um, be as earnest and sincere and prayerful as we can with what we're putting out into this world. And um, I ask for their charity and seeing me that way. Mm, that's beautiful. That's all. That's good. That's a, it's a good place for us to start to wrap up. Um, so if people are interested in your work, where can they look? Oh, they can go to my website. It's not much. It's okay. jamiekohani.com. You can, you can. And we'll link that into, into the, to the video. Sure. YouTube. Um, any parting words? No, this is great. This has been great for me too. Yeah. It's so nice to actually talk to you and see your face in real yes. time. Yeah, you know I mean? we've talked on the phone a few times. Yeah, this is better. Yeah. <laughs> that maybe next time we'll we'll be in 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 real close proximity. Yeah, in physical be proximity. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be so good. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, and uh, thank you everyone for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless you. Bye bye.